Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our teaching series, Misunderstanding Jesus. Throughout this series, we've been revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. Today, Pastor Jason Coker is talking about the difficult and complex topic of anxiety. He's addressing an underlying fear that many of us have. Is anxiety a sin? Jason shares a fresh perspective about this often abused teaching and also vulnerably shares about his own personal struggle with anxiety. In addition, Jason provides a very simple and practical spiritual practice that has helped not only him, but millions of people throughout the ages. Join us now as we take a look at the often ignored and abused teaching of Jesus found in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Weeks ago, when I was up here teaching, we talked a lot about uh, the idea of using our own power and our own privilege on behalf of those who really need it. And this coming Saturday is really an opportunity for us to do that. So Mike Levin, who is our congressman, is, like Lucy said, a potential ally for us as we advocate for the needs of those who are struggling and poor and marginalized and outcast. And this is our opportunity to kind of put Mike on the hot seat. He's going to be answering questions from us uh, that will be represented by Kathy Crimeans, who's right over here. She's also a part of the social justice team here, Justice Works. So Kathy's job is to represent our church on a panel there. And as we turn out, that's our way of showing Mike Levin that we're really serious about these issues, about housing and homelessness and hunger and those kinds of things that, that we really care about here at the church. So even if you're not on the team, uh, I just want to encourage you to come out for that. When a congressperson sees a person show up and walk through the door for a community event like this, in their minds, they're thinking, how many people does that one person represent? Uh, because that's what really matters to them, is how many people in their community really care about this issue. And so they think to themselves, for every one person who's actually willing to give up a Saturday morning and show up, uh, there are probably a thousand people who really care about this issue and are willing to vote on behalf of it. So our showing up there really puts the heat on Mike Levin as we articulate our questions for him. So I just wanted to give a little plug for that if I could and ask you guys to really consider showing up. All right, so enough of the uh, commercials. We're going to jump right back into our series, Misunderstanding Jesus, today. Uh, today we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there to Matthew 6. If not, you can just look up on the screen, and we're going to have a look at Matthew uh, 6 verses, and this is the wrong slide. My apologies. Hold on one second. Okay. So when this rebooted, for whatever reason, it dumped all of the slides for today, just, just so you know. So uh, we're going to read out of my actual Bible, if that's okay. We will just improvise. So, Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there in your Bibles, we are jumping into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and what we're looking at specifically is, if you look at Matthew chapter 6, you'll see 
that Jesus is talking at the beginning of the chapter about almsgiving, and then he goes into prayer, and then he goes into fasting. Uh, so what's interesting about this is in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is teaching in these passages, he is talking about the kinds of spiritual practices that he expects his followers to engage in on a regular basis. So fasting and prayer would have been something that any follower of any rabbi in the ancient Near East would have expected their rabbi to teach them how to do. And immediately after that, immediately after those teachings on prayer and almsgiving and fasting, uh, Jesus jumps into uh, an interesting passage about worry. So if you look down there at verse 25, you're going to see these words. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, uh, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and is not the body more than clothing? And then he goes into this sort of famous saying, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. We'll stop there just for a moment. This is one of those passages that I tend to think is often misunderstood by Christians and oftentimes uh, misapplied and even abused, partly because we all deal with worry and stress and anxiety, and we all struggle with how to manage the daily stress and anxiety in our lives. And so oftentimes it can sound as though Jesus is saying that our worrying, our stressing out is some kind of a sin. And I think that's often how we approach the words of Jesus. Jesus says, don't worry. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the, flower of the flowers of the fields. And we think, oh, something's wrong with me because I'm stressed out about my life. And now we're like worried about worrying, right? We all have a tendency to deal with worry, I think, and stress differently. Uh, my way of dealing with worry and stress is to distract myself. Uh, and we live in a world that makes it incredibly easy to be distracted now. Uh, I'm carrying around right now in my pocket a little supercomputer, right? And we call it a phone. It's an iPhone, but it's really a supercomputer. Like, there's more computing power in the iPhone than there was, like, in all the computers that were used during World War II, Right? So I'm carrying around with me this incredible opportunity for distraction. So if I'm frustrated or worried about tomorrow, I can just reach into my pocket and pull out my phone. I can check my email. I can check my social media. I can check my Instagram, my Facebook. I can send Snapchats to my kids with like little dog ears on them or that you know, overlay on my face if I want to. Uh, and if my phone's not enough, that's okay because I also have an iPad. It's right up there on the podium with my notes. 
So if at some point I stray off of my, my talk here, I can run up there and make sure that I'm on track. Uh, but while I'm making sure that I'm on track with my sermon, I'm, I'm getting little announcements, you know, like my emails are coming through, my Facebook mentions are popping up at me and pinging at me. And so uh, if that's not enough, of course, I also have my computer. My computer is usually sitting. With, at any given time, I have like three Apple devices within three feet of my body. Right? There's my iPhone, my iPad, and my computer. And apparently I thought that wasn't enough because now I have a set of ear pods. You guys seen those ear pods? What's great about the earpods is as you're wearing these things, you can be listening to music or talking on the phone, but when you get a text message, it pings at you, right? And you can just ask it, Siri, read my, my text, and it will read your text messages to you. This feeds perfectly into my personality, by the way. Right? So, so my way of dealing with being overwhelmed or being stressed out is to go hunting for more information. If you're familiar with like a Myers-Briggs personality test, I'm an INTP, right? Which, which is essentially the personality of the person who wants to understand how everything works, wants to pick it all apart, and wants to like break it and reinvent it. That's my entire personality. If you're into the Enneagram, I'm a type five. It's the investigator type, right? So I, I can never have enough information. And you know that I am stressed out and overwhelmed and frustrated with how things are going if my next action is to do more research. Because I want to find out everything there is to know about everything that there is to know so that I can do it the right way and I can help you do it the right way and I can stand up here and talk about the right way to do it. Now, not everybody deals with stress by distracting themselves or escaping into research. Sometimes we deal with stress by focusing on the thing that we're most worried about, right? And so we wonder whether or not we're going to be able to pay our electric bill next week. We wonder whether or not we're going to be able to pay our rent next month. We wonder whether or not we're going to get that promotion that we have been hoping for. And so we fret and stress and analyze it and pick it apart and we contemplate it in the middle of the night. It wakes us up and we find that we're grinding our teeth. We're so concerned about it, right? Our brains sort of obsessively focus on the things that we're worried about to the extent that they begin to actually uh, dismantle our lives. We can't focus on the things that we need to focus on. We can't get the sleep that we need. We can't engage in the relationships that we're supposed to be present for because we're so worried about the things that we really can't control. I think that's really what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Uh, one way that I know that Jesus isn't simply saying that worry is a sin is because Jesus himself concerned himself with the things of the future. So Jesus can't be saying, hey, listen, don't worry about tomorrow, don't think about tomorrow, don't plan for tomorrow, because Jesus was pretty concerned about tomorrow. In Matthew chapter 25, we have three really familiar parables. There's uh, the parable of the ten virgins, followed by the parable of the talents, followed by the parable of the sheep and the goats. And all three of those parables are really Jesus' answer to the question, what's going to happen on the day of the Lord, which is this future day when God will make all things right again. Jesus was very concerned about this future day when God would make all things right again. 
And so his gaze, his mind, his heart is definitely set on something to do with tomorrow. So it can't be some sort of a sin to focus on tomorrow, to plan, to hope, to anticipate. Jesus did it himself. Jesus, of course, can't possibly be saying that it's not okay to worry, to have stress or anxiety, because in the very next chapter, in Matthew 26, we have that story of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that story? Well, there's a reason Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's because Jesus was concerned, stressed, anxious about what was to come with his own crucifixion. And when Jesus was faced with his own crucifixion, he went off to the Garden of Gethsemane. He went off to a, a lonely, isolated, I would say even beautiful place where he could get down on his knees and engage with a sense of prayer that allowed him to wrestle with his anxiety and his stress. His stress and anxiety was so intense, so incredibly high that he sweat droplets of blood. And so we know that Christ is willing to worry, to stress, to have anxiety about what's to come. So it can't simply be a sin to worry or to stress at all. I love this quote from Dallas Willard, one of my favorite uh, authors about spiritual disciplines, about contemplation and prayer and fasting and almsgiving, all those things Jesus was talking about earlier in this chapter. Dallas Willard says this, he says, history has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin. Isn't that true? At this point, when we think about Christianity, when we think about church, when we think about the pastor, don't we often first think, oh, what about those things that I'm doing wrong? What about those lustful thoughts that I'm having? Will, will God accept my worship? Will God accept my offering? Will God accept me at the table of communion because I am full of sin? And of course, we're all broken. We all make mistakes. Dallas Willard says that's really not what Jesus is concerned with at all. He goes on to say, life, life, that is our actual existence, is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message. Life. What if life the things that we wrestle with and struggle with every day are really at the heart of our gospel. What do we miss when we read Jesus' words and immediately think, what kind of sin is Jesus trying to tell me about now? Oh, well, I worry, I stress, I have anxiety. Does that mean that I am sinning? Well, I think that Jesus' willingness to go to the Garden of Gethsemane in his deepest moment of anxiety is really helpful and instructive for understanding what Jesus is teaching us in this Matthew chapter 6 passage. In 2008, Janelle and I moved here to Southern California from Ohio. We lived outside of California for about 15 years. In the last four years that we lived outside of California, we were in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Columbus, Ohio is a perfectly nice place, perfectly wonderful people, uh, but, but it wasn't quite a fit for us for a bunch of reasons, and we've been praying for about a year where God might be leading us next. 
So around 2008, we were kind of wrestling with, you know, where God might be calling us and leading us. And uh, we were thinking a variety of places around the country that we really wanted to live. And then Janelle's mother became ill. We found out uh, at Christmas 2007 that she was wrestling again with cancer. She had beaten cancer once already, but now she was wrestling with it again. And, and we knew immediately when we heard that that we needed to come back to California. Uh, this was home for us. And so we came back here in 2008 and uh, made that transition happen pretty fast. In fact, so fast that neither of us had a job. And so we came back here so that we could be close to her. And we began to try to make a life for ourselves here in Southern California, where, by the way, housing is very expensive. Did you know this? And we ran smack headfirst into something called the Great Recession which started that same year. And I learned very quickly that for somebody who had been in professional pastoral ministry for 15 years, it was really difficult to find a job during the Great Recession. And so while Janelle and our family were wrestling with the grief and the struggle of helping and assisting her mother, uh, we were also really wrestling and struggling with our own kind of economic financial collapse as we were like living off of our savings and cashing out our 401k, that little bit of money that we had saved for a few years through our employment, we were rapidly running out of money and just patching together whatever kinds of jobs we could get, little gigs here and there, like barely able to make the rent every single month. This was enormously stressful for us. Uh, everything was coming at us from all directions. And I found that what really helped me the most, and this is going to sound so cliche and so obvious that it will be, I promise you, very disappointing to hear, but I found that when I was at my worst, when I was most stressed, that if I drove to Buccaneer Park and I parked my car and got out and walked across the street to Buccaneer Beach and just planted myself in the sand, for 30 or 40 minutes that my stress and anxiety would just be sort of absorbed into the ocean. I don't quite know how that works, but I found that even though the ocean wasn't solving my problem, the ocean was putting my problem in a very different perspective. That there was something about those waves like washing up on the shore incessantly over and over again and creating that almost like meditative noise in the background, sort of punctuated by, you know, the laughing of kids playing in the water, the sun beating down on my face, or maybe the fog rolling in and creating a kind of blindness around me. It didn't matter. There was something about being in that space that it would just sort of absorb all of my worries and concerns. I think that when Jesus is saying, consider the birds of the air, he's not presenting us with a more righteous creature that we then feel guilty about because we're not quite as good as the birds of the air or the lilies of the field. Oh my gosh, I have to be like a sparrow. 
I was worried about my job. I was worried about my broken relationship with my spouse. I was worried about the fact that I can't pay my rent. And now I'm worried because the birds and the lilies are more righteous than I am. I don't think Jesus is asking us to compare ourselves to creatures that are better than we are. I think Jesus is very literally saying, consider the birds of the air. Meditate on that image. How is it that every day the sun rises and the birds get up and they go out and somehow they make it? Or they don't. How is it that every day the sun rises and the lilies of the field, they press through the dirt and they grow and they bloom and they drop their seeds and it all happens all over again? I think Jesus is asking us to meditate on the bigger picture. And just like sitting in front of the ocean, when we bring before our minds an image of how the world works day in and day out with us or without us, those stresses, those worries, those concerns that we've become obsessed about, they begin to sort of dissolve away into a recognition that there is something bigger at work that we are not always aware of. I love how Thomas Keating put this, puts this. I'm really describing something that uh, in some traditions, it's called a contemplative prayer. In other traditions, it's called meditation. I know that when we talk about meditation, sometimes that uh, scares some of you. Maybe the hairs rise on the back of your neck because when you think about meditation, you think about something that Buddhists do and you don't see yourself as a Buddhist, so you wonder if that's okay. Uh, but meditation is something that every religious tradition throughout history has done, including Judaism and Christianity. And so whether we talk about meditation or contemplative prayer or centering prayer, we're really talking about the same thing. And I love the way that Thomas Keating describes it. Thomas Keating is a Trappist monk who's become famous for teaching about contemplative prayer or meditative prayer. Uh, and he says this, contemplative prayer is a process of inner transformation a conversation initiated by God and leading if we consent to divine union. One's way of seeing reality changes in the process. A restructuring of consciousness takes place which empowers one to perceive, relate, and respond with increasing sensitivity to the divine presence in, through, and beyond everything that exists. The presence of God is in, through, and beyond everything that exists, including you and me. And when we bring our focused attention to these images that convey that reality, we are able to enter into it more. Carol Spears, about two years ago, She's not in my notes, and she didn't know I was going to call her out today. But about two years ago, Carol Spears gave me uh, a great book called The Phenomenon of Man. You remember giving me that book by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin? He was, a, he was a French Jesuit priest. And his sort of catchphrase, his way of saying this is, 
fuller being is perfect union. That as we reflect on who Christ was, as we reflect on who God is, whether that be through the ocean or through the sparrows of the air or the lilies of the field, or whether it be through the cup and the bread of communion, or whether that be through the Christ who came to serve and to teach and to sacrifice, sacrifice himself as a demonstration of God's mercy and grace, whatever it might be, whatever image you bring before your mind, the purpose of it is to bring you into closer union with God. And that is what happens with our anxiety. We're able to place our anxiety before this larger picture that says that God essentially, and this is really hard to hear, I know, It's hard for me to say it, but when we bring ourselves before these images of nature, we are able to enter into the truth that God is in control. That is a very difficult thing to really grab a hold of if you are suffering. It doesn't mean everything is right, because everything isn't right. But it does mean that behind it all, that God's Spirit is at work, moving and connecting us to resources and each other, to love and grace and mercy and giftedness and skill, all those things that conspiring together mean that not only is God in control, but cooperating with God's in controlness, we can bring about God's purposes. And we can't do that if we are focused obsessively on what's out of our control. And that ultimately is what worry and anxiety is. We all have it. We all feel it. Some of us are caught in the grip of it. But really deep worry and anxiety is us intensely focused on something that we really can't control. And so by intensely focusing on how God is in control, we can replace that destructive focus. It takes real intention. It takes real practice. It takes, in a real sense, work to learn how to do that. But we know that if we learn how to meditate in this way, to intensely focus on what is good and right and true, that we are able to come into a place where we can control our fears and our anxieties. We can't change the things that we don't want to change or that we aren't able to change, but we can change the way that we are gripped by that. Today, we're going to practice that a little bit. We did it already a little bit when Alex's band led us into a a rendition of a a Taze song. Taze is a form of Christian meditation that uses songs and poetry and verses in a very repetitive fashion 
to teach us to focus intensely on something that is true. For example, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And so today we're going to offer you an opportunity now to practice this a little bit more. So instead of closing our service the way we usually do, which is with a song, I'm going to ask Janelle to come up. She's going to grab the microphone. We have been doing this a little bit uh, recently where we carve out a little time in our service together for a contemplation or a meditation of some kind. And usually we do it before the message, before the teaching. Today, we thought it would be good to do it at the end since this is what we're talking about. And so I'm going to turn it over to Janelle, and I want to invite you to really settle in, let go of your anxiousness. We have plenty of time, and close our time together by focusing on what's good and true.